If you want to go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 7, uh, we're going to pick up our walk through Joshua today. So Joshua chapter 7. Um, we took a week off last week when Rick Hedger from the Missouri Baptist Convention was with us. Um, and so we're picking up, just by a quick way of recap, uh, the people of Israel in, in Joshua chapter 6 uh, were... Victory was delivered to them at Jericho because God worked an incredible thing out, right? Like they they walked around Jericho uh, for seven days, uh, and on the seventh day, they walked around seven times, and God brought the walls down and delivered victory to the Israelites. Um, And and one of the key ideas, though, that's in Joshua chapter 6 that's going to funnel right over into helping us understand Joshua chapter 7 is in verses 18 and 19 of Joshua chapter 6, when right before the walls came down, right, right before the people of Israel began to shout and the city was given over to them, they were also given a specific and exact command of what not to do when they went into the city. And in Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 18, Joshua commanded the people, giving them the word of the Lord, saying, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." Uh, and as we walk into Joshua chapter 7, what you're going to see is, is that seems to have happened pretty seamlessly, right? God gave the people specific commands of how to walk around the city, uh, what to do when they walked around the seventh time, what not to do when they went in, and, and seemingly all went well. They, they spared Rahab and her family just as they were commanded to. Her and her family were spared while God delivered the rest of the city into their hands. And then in Joshua chapter 7, uh, it, it begins to to just go, okay, the next step is this, uh, is this next city, and the people of Israel set their sights on it, and this is relaying what happens after Jericho. So it's right after Jericho, right into the next step of taking the land that God has promised. So if you'll read with me, we're going to read all of Joshua chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 26. So if you want to follow it on screen, you can. Or if you want to follow in your copy of the Word, that is fine too. Um, But we'll read the whole thing and then bring it back to the table. So Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 1, says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? 
to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done, do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Everybody got warm, fuzzy feelings yet? A little bit of a, 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 I don't know, we'll just be straightforward. This is a difficult passage that we get to walk through today. Uh, But what we start with in verse 1 Verse 1 provides for us context that Joshua and all of the people of Israel did not have, 
right? So, so you and I are privy to something that has happened before the Israelites go into battle that Joshua and the rest of the people of Israel have zero idea what has taken place, right? But we, it, it sets the expectation. As soon as we find out, in verse 1, but this guy, Israel, broke faith in regard to the devoted things, going back up to Joshua chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. And the fact that we see the anger of the Lord burning against Israel, our very next thought should be, this doesn't sound very good for Israel, right? Like, if that stage is set, we go, that's, that's not looking really good. But one of the things that's interesting about this is that you'll notice at the beginning of verse 1, it says, the people of Israel broke faith. And at the end of verse 1, it says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And yet, the, the, the people are not all of who took the devoted things. It says, Achan, the individual, took something and broke the commandment of the Lord. And yet... His action broke the covenant or broke faith with God for all of the people. That's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? You go, wow. Like, they had no idea. We'll see that they had no idea when Joshua, like Joshua's response to the people's defeat paints a picture of a guy who is absolutely clueless and has no idea why God has turned his face against them. And yet there's one person in all of Israel who knows what he has done. And, and that, that plays throughout the whole chapter. There's one guy who knows that faith has been broken. There's one guy who knows that he hasn't done exactly what the Lord has told all of the people to do. And yet the result of that one person's disobedience is consequences not just for him, but for all of Israel. Now, we'll, we'll hit a, a really quick point of application right off the bat. How often do we believe that our sin is siloed to our life and it affects no one else? And isn't the whisper of the enemy in our ear exactly that? This is only about you. It doesn't affect anyone else. This is just a you problem. and This is just a you secret. This is just a you issue. This will have no bearing on anyone else. And yet the reality of sin through all of Scripture, not just Joshua chapter 7, is that our sin never stays siloed to the individual. It never stays limited to just me. It will always vomit all over the people around us. It will always take more territory. It will always take more ground. And yet the lie that Achan believed, and the lie that you and I might be tempted to believe, is that our actions only affect us, and it does not affect anyone else. And so Achan has broken faith. We don't exactly know what he's taken at this point in Joshua chapter 7. We find that out later on in the chapter. All we know is... He has not done what God has commanded the people of Israel to do. And so, God's anger is kindled not just towards the Canaanites like they would expect, but now is triggered on and focused on the people of Israel. And so in Joshua chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, the people go into battle, again, having zero idea what Achan has done. So much so that like when they go and they send out the spies, just like they sent out spies to Jericho, they come back to Joshua and they say, like, it would really be a waste to send all of our people there. 
And you see that in two different phrases. He says, uh, don't have all the people go up. Don't make the whole people toil. Like this is, this is like a meaningless use of their energy. This is like, this one is easy. You send two to 3,000 people and this will be over in, like by lunchtime. And so Joshua sends 3,000 up. And it doesn't even talk at all about the battle other than he sends 3,000 up and then they flee from battle and they're being chased and 36 men are dead. So the immediate thing that we see is, is not only can Israel not stand in battle, which we, we kind of expect when God says that his anger is burning against the people, but it, remember that lie, this only affects you, it doesn't affect anybody else? 36 men, dead. The rest of them, the rest of the people of Israel, now have the same heart condition that has been true of the Canaanites in the running up chapters of Joshua. Their hearts melted and became inside of them like water. What did Rahab tell the spies when they came in and she sheltered them? We've heard about your God and the hearts of our people have melted away inside of us. Like, and now there's a completely, complete reversal where the people of Israel are now in this melted, mushy mess, terrified and fleeing. Without the context, though, of verse 1 what would we think? Joshua should have just sent more people. The, the advice of the spies was bad. No, you need more than two to 3,000 people. But the idea here is, and, and, and the Lord will flesh this out to Joshua, it doesn't matter had they sent everybody. If the Lord's face is set against them, it doesn't matter if they send the whole company of the Israelites. They will not stand in battle. So it's not, it's not a military defeat in the sense of Joshua just did really poor planning. In fact, there, there, there's a lot of commentaries that say, well, Joshua, had he sought the Lord first, he would, have, he would have done this or this. But none of the blame is ever laid at Joshua in Joshua chapter 7. He's never, like God doesn't admonish him and say, hey, if you had just sought me better, you would have known the, the solution to this. Had you just listened before you sent the spies, there's none of that. All there is is it looks as if if we didn't know verse 1, we just go, man, something horrible has happened. You go from amazing victors to horrible defeat really quickly. And the reality is, in, and I'll say it again, if the Lord doesn't go with them, they stand no chance. If the Lord doesn't go with them, they can do nothing. And so in verses 6 through 9, Joshua seeks the Lord and he grieves the loss. He says, it tore, he tore his clothes and fell to the earth and he, and he threw dust on, their, on his head along with the elders of Israel and they prostrated themselves before the Lord in his presence. It says until the evening. So all day long, they are laying in front of the presence of the Lord grieving because they have been defeated in battle. And then finally... In verse 7, Joshua speaks, and it sounds a whole lot like the Israelites in the wilderness, doesn't it? Oh, man, it would, why did you bring us in here? If you, like, it would have been better for us to stay on the other side of the Jordan where we'd already had victory. There's already land. Like, why did we eat? Like, did you bring us in here so that the Amorites would destroy us? The completely, complete reversal, right? Like, you can imagine after Jericho, there's like, the Lord is giving us the land! And now prostrated on the ground, like, oh, you brought us here to kill us. 
And he lays out from a human standpoint. Joshua understands, right, that if the Lord doesn't go with them, they can do nothing. And in fact, he says, uh, because uh, we have turned our back before the enemies, verse 8. In verse 9, for all of the people of this land will hear of it. They'll surround us and they'll kill us. And they have the ability to do it. And then we'll be destroyed. And then what will happen to your great name? His concern is, for one, it's for the people, but then it's also for the name of the Lord who has made a covenant with this nation. Like, what will the nation, and this is the same thing that Moses said, like, if you wipe out these people, what will the nations think, right? Like, what, what will the nations believe if you wipe out your people? And it's not that God can't make a name for himself. He's absolutely, positively capable of doing it because to this point, he has made a name for himself. Through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he is, he is making a name for himself. Calling a people to a right relationship with him. Calling a people by grace into a covenant with himself to follow him and to walk with him. Just as he told Moses, he says, I can start over with you. And, and yet Moses interceded for a sinful people. So it's not that God is completely dependent on this people, but Joshua's concern is if this people pass away, then God's name is damaged in the process from a human standpoint. Who else among the nations, he might say, would bear his name and proclaim his glory to the nations? It's this people. This is, this is the purpose of Israel is to proclaim and make known who God is and to bear his name in right relationship. And then what Joshua was probably expecting, maybe he wasn't expecting, that might be reading too much into it, maybe Joshua expected an apology. Oh yeah, you're, you're right, I'm sorry. But instead, he, the Lord says, basically, why are you grieving? And then he begins to flesh out the information that Joshua and the people of Israel don't know. He says, Israel has sinned. The reason you lost in in battle is because you, you transgressed the covenant. You did exactly what I told you not to do. That's why you're not having victory. You're, you're grieving over the, the, the military loss, but you're grieving the wrong thing. You ought to be grieving the heart condition that is wrong with his people that has caused the problem in the first place. So Israel sinned not because they lost in battle, but because they transgressed the covenant, they've taken the devoted things, they've stolen, they've lied, and they've put them with their own belongings. Like, refining, refining, refining. In verse 12 there, he says, Therefore, because of this, this people cannot stand in battle. They can't stand before their enemies. You say they turn their back and run. They turn their back and run because, as he told them in in chapter 6, 18 and 19, if they take the devoted things, they will become devoted to destruction just like Jericho was. And, And again, this goes back to the overview of Joshua. The people of Israel do not get special treatment when it comes to right worship. They are held to the same standard of worship that all of the nations that are being judged before them are being like they're they're, they're judged on by the same standard. Is their worship right before the God who created them? And in this situation, we go. They they went from being the ones who are devoting to destruction to being the ones devoted for destruction. A completely complete reversal. 
because their whole relationship with the Lord hinges on the covenant. They're not allowed to do whatever they want just because they're God's special people. Paul would say it to the Roman church. Should we, should we just go on heaping up sin so that God's grace might abound? He says, absolutely not. It's ridiculous. Now, people whose hearts are made right with God through a covenant with him ought to respond and live and move and act within that relationship. That relationship does not give them a blank slate to do whatever they want without consequence. And so he says, you, you won't stand in battle. Uh, in fact, you, you can't stand at all in battle. Uh, and then the, maybe one of the scariest ideas that Joshua or any of the people of Israel could hear is, uh, and, and if it, there was no other information at the end, it would be terrifying. I will be with you no more, verse 12. I will be with you no more unless... There, there, there is a way. You destroy the devoted things from among you. The things that you were supposed to destroy in the first place, you go back and you destroy them. But he has just told them, without me, you can't stand in battle. Without, without the Lord, there is no promise. Without the Lord, there is no land. Without the Lord, there is no inheritance. Like All that the people of Israel have is because God has been and will be with them. If God doesn't go like, and it's the same thing when, when Moses said, oh, when, he, when God told Moses, you go ahead and go into the land, I'll send my angel with you, I'll get you settled in the land, but I am not going with you. And Moses said, I'm not going unless you're going. Right? Like, the, the, the right heart is not, hey, I can have all this stuff without your presence? Okay. It is, if your presence doesn't go, we don't want it. But here he says to, to, to Joshua, I, I, won't, I won't go with you. Until you deal with this. So get up. It's the second time. Get up. Stop grieving. Consecrate the people. In other words, prepare the people for a special meeting with the Lord and tell them, prepare yourselves for tomorrow. And he even tells the people of Israel exactly why they are to prepare themselves for tomorrow. Because thus says the Lord God of hosts, verse 13, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. And then he gives the instructions. So in the morning, Joshua, you're going to gather all the people. You're going to go through them by tribe, by clan, by household, and then by individual. And the Lord will reveal who has taken the devoted things. Not only will the Lord reveal him, but in verse 15, the people of Israel are to take the devoted things, burn them with fire, but then the person who took them is also devoted to ruin. What's interesting is, is still to this point, we have seen nothing of Achan. And as I, as I kept reading and rereading and, and rolling this through my brain, it made me wonder... What in the world was that guy thinking that night? Have you ever, have you ever uh, done something that you knew you weren't supposed to do and you thought that you had hidden it well and then you found out it wasn't hidden well and you knew that they were going to call it to account and, and like you knew that it was going to come out? Anybody, anybody ever done that? It could be like a small thing. It could have been like taking, taking a cookie out of the cookie jar you weren't supposed to take and for some reason your mom had them counted and like, oh, there's one missing. Like, probably didn't happen. There's just crumbs everywhere. Um, but it could be something small. It could be something large. 
where you thought, I have this thing buttoned down, I've taken care of it, it is well hidden, and then all of a sudden you go, it's not well hidden. Oh boy. And it's complete conjecture. You like There's no idea of even knowing. But one of the things that raises the question is like, Achan knows. Achan knows that he took something he's not supposed to. And not just that he took something he wasn't supposed to, he knows that he's defied and, and, and rebelled completely against what God has told the people not to do. And maybe from our standpoint, maybe, maybe it's just my standpoint, you know, man, I would, I would love for it not to make it to tomorrow morning. I would love to see Achan beeline to Joshua's tent and say, hey, here's what happened. I've sinned. I've taken the things I wasn't supposed to take. But when this fleshes out, guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't do that. They go through the whole process. Right? So the next morning, the people gather together, starting in verse 16, and they're, they're all brought near. All of the tribes, all of the people of Israel gathered before Joshua and before the Lord. And it's not clear how, how, how the selection process works, but it is clear that throughout the selection process that the Lord is the one guiding. Whether, I mean, they could be tossing, tossing dice, they could be tossing six, it doesn't really matter. The Lord is the one determining and driving home exactly to the person who has taken the devoted things. And can you imagine knowing what you have hidden in your tent? thinking that it is well hidden and no one knows. And 11 tribes are dismissed. Your tribe is still up. But in the back of your mind, you're still going, I think I still have this thing buttoned up. Nobody knows, nobody knows, nobody knows. And the clans are drawn, and all of the clans are dismissed, and yours gets to stay. And you're still thinking, maybe coincidence. God's not that good. Nobody knows. This was just my stuff. Nobody knows. And then the households are drawn. And all of the household and, and, and the closer this gets refined down, it also the closer the relationships become. Right? It's like it's going from like kissing cousins to cousins to siblings to me. And all of the other households are dismissed, and yet his household remains. And I don't know. I mean, I've probably disappointed some people in my life. But you ever gotten the line, like, I'm not mad at you, I'm just disappointed? Can you imagine, like, when it's your, it's your immediate household that's left, and they're all looking around like, which one of us took this thing? Because they all know they didn't take anything. And you're trying, to, you're trying to look just as bewildered as they are. Like, what is us? <sighs> I bet it's him. He always was taking stuff. And then as individuals are taken, Achan is standing now, not among all of the people of Israel. He's standing alone. There's no one else. And Joshua says to him, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. The other place that this phrase is seen is, is in, in, John, or in, in the book of Acts. When, um, actually, in the book of John, when Jesus heals the guy that was, that was born blind. 
and the religious leaders are trying to get to the bottom of who healed you and what happened, right? And, and they say to him, give glory to God and, and basically tell the truth, right? So Joshua is, in a way, is putting him under, like, to give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him in this regard would be to tell the truth that is in accordance with what is reality. <laughs> and, and Joshua says, tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. And like, he... Joshua still doesn't know what he's taken, but now everybody in all of Israel knows that this is the guy who has taken the devoted things. Now, keep in mind that that as this is whittling down, there are also 36 families in Israel that are mourning and grieving the loss of the men in their family that went to battle and were defeated because he took the devoted things. And he says, he doesn't lie, he says, verse 20, Truthfully, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is how I did it. When I saw among the spoil this beautiful cloak from Shinar, which is Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, probably enough money to last him a lifetime, I coveted them and I took them. And then he says, this is exactly where I have buried them in my tent. Just confirming what we found out in verse 1, that he took something. But I come back to this thought. Sin, sin convinces us that no one sees and no one is affected. And the reality that we see as this fleshes out is that, that, that there is one who sees even when no one else does. Right, Joshua, as the head of the people of Israel, had no idea. The elders of Israel had no idea. Probably arguable that the clans and the households that were drawn up with him had no idea. But the question of it not affecting anyone is the nation is in a helpless place, a hopeless place. People have died. And the reality is, is that the Lord sees it. Just to, to give you a couple of spots where, where Jesus talks about the same thing and the Word confirms the same thing. In Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, as Jesus is, is meeting together with his disciples, there's a bunch of people that gather around to him, uh, and Jesus tells his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But then notice verse 2, he says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. Anything said in secret, in private, will be broadcast, in other words as if it were said publicly. Is it possible, is it possible that even as, as, as faithful, church-attending, Bible-believing people, that we could believe the lie that no one sees my pet sin. 
Is it possible for us to buy into the lie that no one sees and no one is affected? And the reality, and it's not not the the, the fear necessarily of, of oh no, that's not hidden. But the reality is, is that, that no matter how adept we are at covering our tracks and hiding things in our hearts, hiding things in our minds, the Lord knows. I, we might have everybody else, they would be completely bewildered if, if, if the Lord were to do the same thing in our midst and call by, by a household and family and individual. But the reality is just the same. He would be able to pinpoint to a fault each and every one of us for our hidden thoughts and our hidden motives and our hidden everything. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, we get the same idea. It says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We could spend the overwhelming amount of our life trying to pose ourselves as good moral people and trying to hide moral filth that no one else sees, and yet the reality is like we're laid bare before the God who created us. And just like Achan, like, and what was Achan Like, what was worth it for Achan? For him, it was a beautiful cloak and gold and silver that really he couldn't even enjoy. They were hidden and buried in his tent. Like, at what point could he bring those things out and be like, Achan, where did you get that stuff? Oh, my uncle, you know, the one that died in the wilderness. He left me an inheritance. I just wanted to get established in a home before I told you about it. Like, what was he going to say? At what point could he ever enjoy the thing for which he had totally thrown everything else away for? He couldn't. And it's the same way with the things that we keep hidden. We think, well, I'm enjoying this in myself and I can can enjoy it by myself. And yet, it deprives you of the things that really God wants to bless you with. And, And we're nursing things that don't satisfy. And we're leveraging them in a way that they will never bring joy. They'll never bring happiness. They'll never bring peace. And you see the pattern. It's the same whether it's for clothes and gold and silver as it is for any other thing we might harbor in our hearts. He saw, he coveted, he took. James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15 gives kind of the playbook for temptation all the way to sin and death. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But notice this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I'm not a really great fisherman. I'm like a passable fisherman. I'm usually better when I fish with people who know how to fish. But how do you get a fish to take the hook? You figure out what he really wants to eat. Right? A counterfeit. It's shiny for some of them. Or other ones, like it looks like a, like a real little fish that's doing this thing, but it's not a real little fish. 
You get that same picture. Each one is tempted when they're lured and enticed by our own desire. And then, desire, when it's conceived, when it takes the hook, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It goes all the way back to, to Adam and Eve. Eve saw that the fruit was good for eating and decided, I like that. She took, she ate. It's the same picture that the, the Achan does. I saw it. Then I coveted it. Then I took it. And the idea here is that it wasn't an accidental taking. right? Like For it to boil up to the point where he decided to act on it, he had given it room to think and to breathe in his brain of, wouldn't it be nice to have those things? Rather than, that's the Lord's. And you think about this, like it, it couldn't have been easy for him to take them and to hide them in his tent. All the men of battle are going in and, 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 and all of the spoils are being taken to the Lord, laid out in front of him. And yet somehow Achan manages to take a cloak, gold and silver, into his tent and bury it. In the middle of everything going on, he had to, like, it was intentional thought that was given. He had a plan, and that plan went counter, like completely counter to God's direct command to him. In the same way, how often is our sin directly, like it's, it's in direct conflict to the word that we know that's in our hearts and in our minds. And yet there's a navigating and a justifying and a, and a turning it to go, well, that's not really what this is because I like this thing. But it's the same process. It's, it becomes intentional. It's not just I accidentally felt like I found the cloak and I accidentally put it in my tent. And isn't that how we often see our kids justify the things that I was an accident? That accidentally ended up in my mouth. I didn't mean to eat all the candy. Like the sugar just fell out of the cabinet and then it accidentally just fell all in my mouth and just very little on the floor. I accidentally did this. I accident, like I accident, like, and, and, and notice this: that sin is more. Like, think about the words that we use to describe our sin. We, we might say, "Well, I, I messed up. I was a slip up. It was an accident. It wasn't something I intentionally did." And yet, sin painted out in Joshua chapter seven is like it, it is. First of all, it is far more offensive to the Lord than we give it credit for. And secondly, it is far more intentional than we ever admit it is. Conscious choices, conscious decisions, conscious wrestling with the Word and then going, no, my desire outweighs what I know God has clearly said. And then as we get to this uncomfortable section, which I would say this is the most uncomfortable section, if none of the, the rest was uncomfortable, it gets far more uncomfortable in verses 22 through 26 as they meet out the punishment they bring out all of the devoted things and they lay them before the Lord, but then they bring all of Achan's stuff and, and all of his possessions, all of his animals, all of his stuff, and, they, and they, they bring it to this valley and it's all burned. And then it's, it's unclear, but it, 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 there is, you could read it in one direction or the other. It could be that they burned them is all of the possessions, but it can also be they burned him and his household. And his sons, his daughters, his wife also 
devoted to destruction because of what he had done. Now, you go, that's, that's really uncomfortable, and I agree with you. Very uncomfortable. Deuteronomy chapter 24, I think, helps us a little bit with this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I say it a little bit because it's still uncomfortable for us for sin to be judged and condemned the way that it rightly deserves. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, when God gave out the law to the people of Israel, he said, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So, either God is violating his own rules if the whole family was killed, or the whole family participated in it. And it, and it would probably make sense that way. If, if, you, like, if you came home and dad was opening up like a, a hidden uh, <laughs> passageway in the, in the basement of the, the, the house, and he had shiny like gold coins and silver in there, you're like, what's that, dad? We just defeated Jericho. I don't know what that is. Right, they, they probably understood like when he's digging a hole in the middle of the tent, they're probably present. They're probably aware. Or the reading is, so, so that's our two options. Either they're innocent and it's just all of his possessions and Achan that are burned and stoned, or family is all aware and thereby they're, they're, they're sharing in the picture of being devoted to destruction. And what's interesting about this, when they went into Jericho, Rahab and her family were spared, and they were brought into the covenant. They were made to be Israelites by faith. Now, in the same way, Achan and his household, because they have broken the covenant, have become Canaanites. One family grafted in through faith, one family revealing that they're not part of the family because of a lack of faith. And one of the things that we would have to come to as we, as we wrestle through this, sorry, my throat is about to run away with me. <coughs> A couple of questions that I think inherently come out of this. Is there anything in my life that I am knowingly doing or believing that God expressly forbids? Thank you. Is there anything in me like that, that I know that God expressly says, don't do this, and I know that I'm doing exactly that thing? <clears throat> and have I, have I bought into the lie that no one sees this? No one knows. This is, this is just my issue. Jeremiah chapter 17. A couple of verses that I think uh, we talk about that we know. <clears throat> Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then the Lord speaks, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, just a, a couple really quick thoughts on this. One is, what then is our hope? Because of it, 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 
if every express command of Scripture, you know, we just started with the Ten Commandments. If every time that we broke one of God's Ten Commandments meant that we were to join Achan in his demise, who of us would be left standing? No one. Everybody, everybody, Romans tells us, has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. What Judges, or Joshua chapter 7, one of the things that it does for us, though, is it shows us the serious nature of our sin before a holy God. What our sin deserves is eternal separation from Him. The fact that, like, we don't, we didn't, like, when the first time we, when we woke up this morning and we sinned about three seconds later, that he didn't immediately just call it to judgment. One of the things that we learn throughout Scripture is that God is incredibly patient with us. <coughs> that if we were to be judged according to what our sin deserves, all of us would be eternally separated from a holy God. And yet what Scripture continues to set us forward for as we look forward is that that God in His great love for us determined instead of you and I bearing our own sin and going into eternal separation or an eternal hell separated from Him, God determined from the foundations of the earth to send His eternal Son Jesus to take on flesh to live the perfect life that you and I don't live. Not to rub our face and, ha ha, He's perfect and you're not but instead so that he would go and he would die the death that you and I deserve to die. And he went to the cross being perfect in every way, holy in every way. And yet, 2 Corinthians tells us that for our sake he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's the most scandalous exchange in the history of the world. Like if you think that whole uh, six prisoners for six prisoners in Iran and like six billion dollars is bad, take all of the sinful people and say, I'm exchanging the holy, unblemished, sinless Son of God for them. And they are going to now wear His righteousness and be seen through His righteousness, not through their sinfulness. This is the most incredible picture of grace that you could... Like, it's the definition of grace. Getting what you don't deserve. At the same time that God is gracious in pouring out all of our sin on Jesus and He bears our punishment, it comes back to that idea in, in Romans. Then, does that mean that we are just free to do whatever we want and expressly go against what God has commanded us to do and to be? By no means. It's ridiculous. If we're people made new, brought into a right relationship with Him, it begins to conform and, and change how we do everything. And just one, uh, one other quick thing that I uh, wanted to make sure that I covered, because otherwise somebody's going to say, wait, does this mean X, Y, Z? This does not mean, uh, Joshua chapter 7 does not mean that every time you cannot find a parking spot at Walmart, that it means that you have somehow sinned against God and He's bringing punishment on you. 
It does not mean that every little thing and every little hiccup in your life is, is directly tied to your sin that you are aware of and you're harboring. Now, at the same time, if you, are, if you know that you're harboring sin that God expressly forbids, like you can expect that he will not bless that and that there will be consequences in your life for it. Right? At the same time, It is not just this picture of karma where I did three sins, so I get three bad things. I did seven good things, I get seven good things. If you are in Christ, you are seated in the heavenly places with him, and you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, which far outweighs any of the bad stuff you would ever deserve or could earn. At the same time, Joshua 7 is clear that there are times when our sin leads to direct consequences in life. Achan's sin directly led to defeat at Ai. His sin directly led to 36 people dying in battle. His sin led directly to himself and all of his family or all of his possessions being devoted to destruction. Like, sin is serious. At the same time, not every burp of the car engine is expressly tied to your pet sin. At the same time, every fallen thing in this world is tied because, like, is affected because of sin generally. There is nothing in this world that is untouched by sin save Jesus. So whenever you do experience things that are not the way they ought to be, it may or may not be. This is my, this is my little cover. It may or may not be because of your independent action, but it is because of our collective sin before holy God. The earth is broken. Relationships are broken. Stuff is broken. Politics is broken. Ideologies are broken. Brokenness is everywhere because sin has infected it all. And where we find ourselves at odds with God's holy word, let's be quick to turn to him in repentance and faith. Don't continue to nurse it thinking no one sees it. It will be called to account. And just like again, like someday we will stand before the Lord and it will all be laid bare before him, even as it is now. And by choosing to nurse it and to hold on to it, it's not just you that's affected. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about the, 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 the life of the church being a body. And if one part of the body is sick, the whole body is sick. Our, our sin affects one another. When it is not properly, like when it's, when it's not brought back in faith in Christ, when it's left to run rampant in our lives, we would be foolish to think that it sits in a silo and doesn't affect anyone else. Let's be quick, run it to the Lord. First of all, do what he says. Secondly, if we don't do what he has said, let's be quick to run back to him in repentance and faith. And First John, it says that he's faithful and just to forgive us when we ask him to. It's the pattern in the life of a believer in Christ, constantly running back to the one who has given us all grace through faith in Christ.